0: Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today is recording from the lands of the rai who are the original people and stewards of the San Francisco Peninsula. My guest, who I'm very excited to be in dialogue with today, uh, Subini Anama, was a special education teacher in public schools and youth prisons, and is currently an associate professor in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. Her research critically examines the ways students are criminalized and resist that criminalization through the mutually constitutive nature of racism and ableism, how they interlock with other marginalizing oppressions, and how these intersections impact youth education trajectories in urban schools and youth prisons. Her book, The Pedagogy of Pathologization, won the 2019 AESA Critics' Choice Book Award and the 2018 NWSA Alison Pipemeyer Book Award. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alex.
0: I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're able to talk. Um, let's, let's jump in with obviously a big question um, and something you've thought a lot about. How does the process of criminalizing youth and criminalizing students happen?
1: Right. So this is a big question and I appreciate it. And yes, I think a lot about it. Um, I focus on criminalization in schools. So I just want to clarify that because there are other folks who look at criminalization outside of schools. But I also want to clarify that criminalization does not always originate in schools, but schools are often the place where criminalization plays out. So, and I can talk about that more when we discuss the school to prison pipeline and the school prison nexus, as I I prefer to describe it as. Um, And so we can talk about that in a little bit. But what I really want you to understand is that when when criminalization happens in schools it happens a number of different ways but what i found and why i named the book this kind of complicated name the pedagogy of pathologization is because of this cycle of pathologizing that i was seeing that students particularly for me was girls of color and disabled girls of color specifically were experiencing in schools but i think that many many youth youth of color experience in schools so that was a kind of cycle of hyper-labeling, hyper-surveillance, and hyper-punishment. And I put hyper in front of all of them because we know labeling, surveillance, and punishment happens to all youth. But what we found was the hyper mattered because these kids were being labeled with many multiple labels and once they got one unwanted label, they were more likely to have more. They were surveilled, um, which means that they were watched closely and held to higher standards than other kids. And they were punished, which means that they were experiencing extreme exclusion um, in different ways, whether it be in special education, uh, segregated settings, whether it was um, from disciplinary exclusion, was it from um, cops and other carceral agents coming onto school grounds? Um, So there's multiple ways and, and there was multiple entry points to that cycle. But that cycle became very clear to me that that was what all students were continually describing when I talked to incarcerated students about what they experienced in schools.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that the way these, the, la- the hyper-labeling, hyper-surveillance, and hyper-punishment sort of compounds and feeds into this perpetuating cycle. How does this process of hyper-labeling, hyper-surveillance, and hyper-punishment within the school nexus, how does that affect Um, these youth as individuals and as uh, students or as learners?
1: That's a great question. And one of the reasons, the reason I named it right we talk about it. i t- started talking about a cycle of pathologization but then i i also ter- ter- started discussing it as a pedagogy of pathologization and the reason why is i mean ai am in education and we talk about pedagogy all the time which again just because we're academics we don't need to use all difficult words pedagogy is just another way to talk about teaching right and teaching whether it's your philosophy or practices right so just trying to make things more accessible um But the reason I talked about it as a pedagogy is because not only was this hyper-labeling, hyper-surveillance, and hyper-punishment really visible and common in all of the girls' stories, but what was also very visible and clear was about the ways that the system and the people within, including teachers, including school security officers, including administrators, including... um, Uh, probation officers, and then youth prison officials, whether it be all the way from administration, all the way to the teachers and security officers, really started focusing on teaching the girls about their own weaknesses and their own individual problems and what they saw as deficits. So um, through this pedagogy and pathologization, so if you did something wrong, I'm going to teach you through punishment. If you did something wrong, I'm going to teach you through more surveillance. I'm going to watch you even closer, which again, remember that hyper surveillance simply means that those kids are held to an even higher standard. Kids who've been shown to struggle, who have issues going on in their personal lives, who are who are already having a hard time in school, then they're held to even higher standards. The rules are applied more harshly, and also the punishments are applied more harshly. So that was... Um, one way that i saw this impacting individual girls but also large groups of students right because if you look at the data you can see that black girls for example are suspended at um at a much higher rate than white girls and in fact most boys in so but they're also if you so if you look at disabled black girls they're suspended at even higher rates than non-disabled black girls so again we start to see whole groups of kids being targeted. And I want to use that word very, very consciously is that they're being targeted. And I argue that they're being targeted for things that we that we know are aligned with their disability. So sorry about that. (laughs) Um, So so, you know, I really want that to be understood as well.
0: Can you can you explain that a little more that they're targeted um, because or for for things related to their disability? What does that mean? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm sorry, the, my connection is just a little weak. I think you asked if I could explain what I meant by targeted for things related to their disability. So let me give you a couple of examples that might be more in the popular consciousness. And we actually, myself, um, Valissa Thompson, and Representative Ayanna Presley from um, Massachusetts actually wrote an op-ed in Teen Vogue about this, about the the ways that Black disabled girls are targeted um, for things that happen and the, and the carceral responses to their behavior. So, for example, a lot of people might remember the story last summer of Grace, the 15-year-old girl who was sent, um, who was sent to um, a youth prison. She was, she was found in violation of her probation for getting up late for virtual school and not turning in her homework. Right. So one of the things that I noticed is a lot of people rallied around grace, which was amazing. This is what we want. We want people re- rejecting the criminalization of our children. Right. But, but in what there was a couple of things that kept getting missed in the story, it felt like we kept noting she was a black girl, but we kept ignoring not we, but there are certain outlets who kept ignoring that she was a black girl with ADHD. Right. So she is ADHD, which is deeply so much of ADHD is related to being disorganized, struggling with time, things that are directly, so she's being punished for things directly related to her disability. And the other thing I, I really thought was not talked about enough with Grace's case is that that was two weeks after the pandemic began that she was sent to that youth prison. So it wasn't like she got some long time of, of adjustment Right or the the sub and and another thing that's really important to note is that schools at that point two weeks into the pandemic were just starting virtual school they did not have and and, and now people are getting sued for it uh, special education supports in place in most places I'm so sorry um, <laughs> so. um, so they did not have those those special education supports in place. So look who gets criminalized in this situation, both of which when a school is not following the law, right, IDEA, which is the Individuals for with uh, Disabilities for Education Act, and um, mandates, right, it's part of the law that schools have to follow and give kids their accommodations and modifications. And um, so we have a school who's not following the law, and we have a, a 15-year-old Black girl who's getting up late during a pandemic, and technically that's a violation of her probation. Which one of these got punished afterwards, right? The Black girl. Um, and so really reminding this disabled Black girl being punished for her disability, and that's what I mean by is when I say they're, 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 the, the system is using them as targets to remove and punish.
0: That's really interesting. And it shows the larger, um, just the who gets punished versus these systemic abuses that are overlooked or ignored or aren't corrected. Um, And I think it reveals also this important thing that because of labeling surveillance punishment in school, it feeds into this broader carceral project that the response is punishment, the response is incarceration. Has your research revealed sort of longer term trajectories or um, or results of this hyper-criminalization, hyper criminalization, um, hyper surveillance of students?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, mine and others, right? Of course I wanna I wanna recognize the lineage of scholarship that I situate myself in and and, and um the work that's come before mine um, that 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 allowed me to do the work that I do. But one of the things is um, I work, so I work both in public schools and as this book revealed, I also work with um, incarcerated young women, right? And incarcerated girls of color, particularly those with disability labels. And one of the things that was very, that became very clear as I started to read the literature, and I wanna say this was um, from Mike Males and a couple of other people talking about um, the ways that girls of color in particular, so they're overrepresented for status offenses, right? So the offenses that are illegal for kids under 18. So girls of color are already overrepresented when it comes to prosecuting those um, and serving time for those. So we have that. But what we also know is that girls are more likely, and girls of color specifically, are more likely to be Um, punished more based on their original charge. So what I mean by that is they get out, they're more likely to be found in violation of their probation. Uh, They're more likely to be punished. I shouldn't say they're more likely to be found because that actually would assume different differential behaviors, but they're more likely to be punished for a violation of their probation. So again, and, and so they're going back into jail and serving longer times based on the original um, sentence that they had. so that's that's another way that they get pulled back in. What we also found is it takes multiple years to recover from incarceration for youth. So right now I'm working um, uh, uh, after a, a st- another study that I did in a, in a youth prison um, in 2018, I'm working with um, many of the black girls who came out of that study and who are now no longer incarcerated and the amount of vulnerability they still have to houselessness, to housing insecurity, to even if it's not from the carceral state, the original charge from the carceral state, they they are also super vulnerable to all these other things that have to do with poverty and houselessness and the ways that we criminalize poverty makes them likely to go back to jail. So, you know, the things that start in schools or even the things that originate or play out in schools, um it definitely have a long-term impact and then I'll, I'll just clarify one thing so, the, so sometimes I say originate or play out in schools and what I mean by that is sometimes kids get um charges that are in school right for fighting or for smoking or for something like that in schools right so that is obviously uh some of the ways they're criminalized the pedagogy and pathologization is another way but also like one of my uh clearest findings, and now this has been backed up by much more research than my own, is the link between family, what what Dorothy Roberts calls the family regulation system, which is also called the welfare system, or sometimes kind of family safety system, you know, but um, what Roberts calls the family regulation system, because it's really become a punitive situation. And so uh, nine of my 10 girls who I worked with in this study, their first encounter with a system was running away. And running away became a criminalized offense that often they would get arrested for or reported for when they got to school. So it didn't actually start in school, but schools were the places it played out, their criminalization played out.
0: And school is then the, the place where that contact happens with the criminal legal system.
1: Exactly. And they, many of them talk about being, being handcuffed in schools and being perp walked out for the, for the crime of running away which when you think about what the crime of running away is, right, It's running away, often running away from unsafe situations, or what some, multiple girls reported is they got taken away from their mothers and they ran away to get back to their mothers.
0: Wow. Wow. And you can imagine these, this process just increases the trauma increases these consequences and doesn't actually address these root social, the, the root causes of these social issues. Um, And I sort of want to transition then into um, looking at this larger school prison relationship, Um, some have called the school to prison pipeline, you referenced earlier that you prefer the, the school prison nexus, why do you prefer that term, what is it?
1: Yeah, thank you. I want to note, right, the school to prison pipeline came out of early work in the late 90s and early 2000s of people recognizing the links between criminalization and schooling. So I absolutely want to honor that, that, that term and honor the labor of activists and academics who, and who brought that term into the public consciousness. It was really, really important work. But it it just does certain things that that have now found as it, as we've had more time to think about and and really interrogate the relationships between schools and prisons. Um, as you said, it can it um, in the questions you sent me, it can look like a causal relationship. It can also look like a linear relationship. You go to school, you end up in prison, right? But as I said um, just a minute ago, with the idea of child welfare being another place where kids end up. Um, through schools, also being carted off to prisons, there are, you know there there are multiple examples of different institutions that criminalize youth. So think about immigration, right? We've seen kids in cages, but even before that, we have seen multiple ways that we criminalize young people, and schools have a part to play in that, but they're not always the source of the criminalization. So it's not always a causal effect, so much as it a relational effect, right? And so so another example would be. Um, higher edu- another type of, high- of schooling, like higher education, right? So higher education can ask for the discipline records before they admit kids. Like sometimes you have to send those to in your in your college application. Think of who that limits, who that limits access to. So one of the things I've noted is that, A, there are these multiple institutions in a, in a carceral state that's run through carceral logics of this kind of labeling uh, surveillance and punishment. Multiple institutions are committed to this kind of carceral kind of thinking of particular policed bodies or targeted bodies, right? And so, Black, Brown, queer folks, um, and disabled folks of color, and and queer and disabled and queer and gender nonconforming folks, and trans folks of color, right? So those folks are the ones that we know are more likely to be caught up in this net of criminalization between these multiple institutions. Even homeless shelters, right? Who again, do important work, but what kind of criminalization comes with being at some of those homeless shelters or being kicked out of one of those homeless shelters? So again, all of these things, all of these institutions are are part of this kind of criminalizing network. Um, And then the thing that I think is also really important to note is A lot of times we think of these institutions as very separated, but the borders are very porous. So what I mean by that is, so like I said, schools can send discipline records to higher ed. ICE can sometimes contact schools. Now, they're not supposed to be able to because of certain legal, legal protections, but that doesn't mean they don't. Right, and and we've seen, especially in the last four years, we've seen an increase of relationships between school and ICE. We actually know that kids in youth prisons. One of the girls I worked with was um, undocumented, and so she was after she finished her her um, her sentence was going to be transported to ICE and have to go through a have to go through a uh, appointment with a judge, a court hearing to decide if she was going to be deported by herself because her family is a mixed status family, so. If, they, if she was gonna get sent back or if she was going to be able to stay here. So just multiple ways that these institutions report on and inform each other when a person is out of line or out of, that needs kind of what, what I talk about is state retribution. So again, schools are one part of that and they're an important part of that. And I don't wanna lose that focus on schools. That's, that's mine as an educator. And it works within a network of other schools, so that or with other institutions. So that's what I want us to understand about why the nexus, which is um, Erica Miners describes as a his as a web of of institutions, histories, and policies that that impact carcerality in schools.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a perfect way to phrase um, all of these interlock interlocking manifestations of this logic of this of this carceral logic. And one thing I do want to ask, um, because as you place the the schools within in this criminalization within um, the carceral state more broadly, one thing a lot of scholars of the carceral state have pointed out is that there, there's almost always this dialectic. Where the state commits violence or oppression, there's also resistance. So how have students, how have youth, or how have their allies resisted this criminalization, this labeling, this targeting?
1: Right. So I try to and that's one thing I I really tried to do. So when I work with incarcerated youth or or youth in public schools, I I try to understand how they are resisting. And one of the things you know, and and they're resisting on multiple layers. So I want to just start with that. Like there's no one way kids resist. It it just really varies. Right. So some of them have a lot of individual um, acts of resistance. And those individual acts of resistance are, all, are often boiled down to behavioral problems and, and viewed as deficits for these kids, when really these kids are, are pushing back on a system that they know is not treating them well. So that is one way, is these. Um, so, what I, what I termed in the book was called strategies of resistance. And there was a whole bunch of examples, um, you know, talking back laughing out loud, refusing to engage, all of these ways that kids said, oh, I did this. But what's important about these is that when I talked to the kids after, after they had done a particular thing, what they often said was, oh, no, I did this on purpose. I did this for a purpose. A lot of times um, individual acts of resistance are seen as kind of some behavioral outburst that kids have no control over and they're situated as kids just not being able to control themselves when really what these girls of color were telling me was, oh, no, I I needed to get out of class because that person was a jerk and I was going and I needed or I needed to make a phone call and that person said no, or I just needed a break. And so I cussed this person out, or I refused to work, or I put my head down, or I rested, um, or I left, you know, so these multiple ways that but but it's not this impulsive kind of behaviorist in individualized kind of behavior. A lot of times, a they know that there's a system that they're pushing against, they might not have the words to describe it, but they know they have to push against something. And B, they get their needs met. Now, those strategies of resistance are often criminalized in schools, again, and put into that pedagogy of pathologization, so it's not necessarily getting them free by any means, and sometimes it even adds time to their sentences or adds, time, adds, adds additional ra- uh, uh, rationale for exclusion, but that's not those kids' fault, that's, that's the adults and the ways we choose to respond to kids. So there's those individual strategies of resistance, and then there's also kids really resisting in multiple ways by coming together, figuring out how to um, how to argue for specific things that they need changed in schools. There's obviously organizational kind of resistance where folk, kids are organizing and getting organized through multi-generational uh, relationships, um, pushing for abolition, right? There's whole groups like Integrate NYC that is just... That is a client in a lawsuit pushing for um, the 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 right to an anti-racist education. There are kids working to get youth prisons closed down. Um, there are um, and one of the things that was really interesting to me is how many of the girls talked about wanting to go into the profession um, that surrounded carceral institutions, whether it be a probation officer. Or things like that, but because they cared and they cared about kids and they believed that the people currently in those roles did not care about them. Or there was somebody one or two people who they who did care about them who they wanted to emulate, but they wanted to go into those roles, not to continue a pedagogy of pathologization, but instead, or those carceral logics, but instead to send care and love to those kids who are caught up in that system.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's really, I think one of the like key points you make in your work is that these strategies of resistance and what, what students or youth choose uh, to pursue is really an informed political action. Um, what we may label as impulsive, but it's informed, it's thought through. Um, it's, it's, it's a powerful reframing of these, what the school system might call antisocial behavior.
1: Right, and and for me, the the huge thing, like the where adults can still step in and play a role in this, right, and how teachers can practice a pedagogy that is different than this. What I what I call like building a discrete classroom ecology, or what some people talk about as liberation—different di- phrases for it. But what what we can think about is. Um, is how we can support kids in taking what is happening to them individually and linking it to systems. Some kids do that naturally, but a lot of times kids are taught from such a young age to individualize every experience they have that they don't see how it relates to the collective, or they do, but they don't have the language to describe it. They don't. They don't kids don't get taught words like racism, ableism, cis-heteropatriarchy, right, like white supremacy. Those are words that tools that we get as an adult that they're not having access to. Now, that doesn't mean no kids do. Some Certainly certain kids, because of the way they are raised or the relationships that they have, have gotten that political education. But that's one thing that we can think of as adults. If we're going to really, we really want to resist these carceral logics, you know, Freire tells us a long time ago that we need to be in relationships, in relationships of solidarity, not relationships of patro- patronizing relationships or anything else, but these deep solidarity relationships where we learn with and from each other.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so important. That's such a great point that, they, that it needs to be relational and it needs to reveal the systemic nature. Uh, this criminalization and pathologization. So, what are the some of the other ways as adults, as educators, um, that we can be in solidarity? We can we can promote a positive, a liberationist, a justice, whatever word you want to use, pedagogy.
1: Right. So, I think for me, part of it is um, building on what's already there. So, like the power of ethnic studies. Um, but you know, like I write to folks who who do ethnic studies and do who do racial justice work in schools, and I encourage them to be more intersectional, to think about um, um, really understanding intersecting oppressions. Um, so you know, I, I often use the example of like Fannie Lou Hamer, who's um, somebody who every many of us hold up as like the mother of the civil uh, of the civil rights movement, but remind them that Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten severely in a Mississippi jail, that she also had polio as a child and, and, and how polio, right, is not this, like COVID is not the illness that everyone got equally, like who, you know, start to understand the math and the disproportionate impacts on poor black communities, but also um, that she was uh, forcibly sterilized. And, and, and in, in, in Mississippi in the 1950s, it was so common, it was coined the Mississippi appendectomy. But Fannie Lou Hamer took that information and she fought for, A, she fought against the Mississippi appendectomy. She brought it to the public. She pushed it in many of her talks. She also was like well known for not being at the front of marches. But the reason why was partially because she couldn't be at the front of marches. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing because it changed the way she organized. She would go into schools or go into relationships with young people and sit down and listen and talk. Right. And so what does it mean to sit down and listen and talk and have, you know, one of the things I talk to teachers about all the time is like, we have to have some humility in this conversation. Like we can't just assume we know how to connect these things and that kids don't have that information. We have to, we have to be a facilitator more than a, like the person at the front of the room. So I think that's a huge part of this is, is both engaging intersectional oppressions and a lineage of resistance of folks that we have put at the margins. So I, I concentrate on disabled people of color because they are often pushed to the margins, even in, in, in communities of color. I mean, we could talk about queer and trans folks that are often pushed to the margins and, and gender nonconforming folks. There are multiple people at the margins that if we brought into the center of our conversations, could shift the things we ask for or the things we dream about and the things we uh, fight for.
0: Yeah, that is very powerful and so well put. Um and really gives us um so much to work on, so much to do. And it transitions perfectly to um, my closing question. Although this conversation could go on for, for hours, um it's so interesting. Uh the closing question that I asked to every everyone who's on the show, what gives you hope today?
1: Ooh you know, this has been a dark week. It has been a really dark week with the with the shooting of Dante Wright, but also um, so much anti-Asian violence, um, so much just um, the, the anti-Blackness in, in the systems. You know, it, it is hard to hold on to hope. And yet I think I really believe what Maria Acaba says, who's an abolitionist who I read regularly and try to understand and, um, you know, uh, where she talks about hope being a discipline and something that we have to act towards um, that hope isn't just a like a happy feeling, right like it's a it's a something that we have to practice. And so what gives me ho- hope is practicing being in community with people and figuring out right So like right now I'm doing a fundraiser for formerly incarcerated girls. I you know try to I'm figuring out ways for my lab to hire formerly incarcerated youth and also doing interviews with other folks but I think for everyone right and and watching the movement the the pickup of abolition has been really exciting um And I want people to remember where it's rooted in first, the abolition of slavery, and then the abolition of the prison industrial complex, and not lose that as we take it to abolitionist pedagogy, abolitionist teaching, abolitionist, you know, these different ideas um, of, you know, to root out that carceral logics. So that gives me a ton of hope. And it really reminds me that we have to be rooted in what that really means. Like, what does abolition mean for us? But the hope for me will always be being in relationship with young people. Like that, that is my hope because they are so much better than we ever, I ever was as a teenager. And um, and also like being in relationship with them, being in conversation with our elders, like being in multi generational movements that are create are being created right now. I mean, there's so many ways to get involved. And that's I just want to remind people like if you want to practice hope, start where you are. Start with what you know. And then try to figure out what you don't know and look around for who else is doing it. Um, because that is to me, like how we get from what we have now, which is a, an incredibly violent and cruel system targeting the most marginalized um, and, and all kind of rooted in those um, pathologizing and carceral logics. And if we wanna to get to a place where, you know our central tenant of, 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 of relations is care and we have to think about how to get there, you know, through folks who are already doing the work, who are already kind of, and, and being in relationship with those marginalized people.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, as yeah, hope is a discipline is so important. And also as Ruth Gilmore and others have said, as, and you're mentioning here, evolution is presence. It's being in community, it's being present, it's doing work. And I want to give you a chance um, before we sign off, do you want to shout out any out of the fundraiser you're doing on or doing or any groups doing this work that people can look into um, that you're particularly interested in or are or, or doing great work?
1: You know, I, I think thank you for that opportunity. I mean, there's so many folks doing great work. So if you're in in higher education, there's a there's a movement called Cops Off Campus. If you're in K-12 education, there are cop-free schools that folks are doing. There are great youth organizing. Uh, groups who are already there, such as the Black Organizing Project, um, as a Project NAYA is another one that Mariama Kaba and some other folks have started. But I also want us to remember that, like, we need to take a breath and look around and not try to get involved in everything. Right? Like, if you can do one thing. Maybe it's writing letters to somebody in prison. Maybe it's donating to books to people. Maybe it's um, getting involved in your local school board. I mean, there's just so many steps and access points into you know, higher, um, into that kind of shift. Um, so I think, I think part of it is, is, is looking around to see who's already doing the work in your area. I think geographically it's smart to stay local to try to figure out what is happening in your community um, you know, in in the the issues that are going on in Brooklyn Center, right outside of Minneapolis, right now, are so important, and they do have a larger relationship for what is going on in the world. But they also are very specific to Brooklyn Center, right? And so, and the reason I'm bringing that up, and the and and this is obviously related to the shooting of Dante Wright. But the reason I bring that up is because i think that's the other thing is we can start thinking about like national change and things like that and i don't think it's that we shouldn't do that but i also think like communities of care if there's anything i've learned during the pandemic around mutual aid is that it's local it's your it's your neighbors it's your it's the people you your kids go to school with it's those folks that we're in relationship with that we want to build with and so i just really encourage us to look around what's happening in your in your neighborhood and in your city, because chances are something is happening there that you should start with and that you should go in and listen. Like you don't have to go up to the front of the line, right? And as an academic, I, I have to say this to myself all the time because right, we're told you go to the front of the line, you've got the expertise, you lead the way. But these relationships tell tell me continually to go to the back, listen, and then see what resources I can offer to the people already doing the work versus leading the work.
0: Exactly. That is that is fantastic. That's a great way to end this. This conversation has been so interesting. Um, it's left me with questions and things to continue thinking about and working towards. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me um, and to to be in conversation.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm excited to listen to more of this podcast. You know, I'm. I I am new to carceral studies in the sense that I'm an educator, like education and carcerality haven't always been put together. So I appreciate everybody who's always doing this work and is thinking these things through that I've learned from. So thank you and thanks to folks who are doing this work already.
0: Good, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Tune in to our next episode and engage with us on Twitter.